You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Just like that. Final hours here on this Monday edition. Glad you're with us. Recapping the top sports storylines. Almost made it, Hudden. One more hour. One more hour. One more hour. The Monday is done. Our location with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. We're going to get up, uh, get into the Major League Baseball and the payroll for the Padres and the money they're dishing out. Even to players that were already making bukus of money and major contracts with the franchise either way. Money's to be made at the the top crust of name, image, likeness, Jab. But late last week, we saw where the NCAA is handing down their first ever NIL infraction. Uh, and it happened at Miami. And here's how they're going. I think this is a blueprint for how they're going to try to go about this moving forward. And there are a couple of key factors of who they didn't discipline in this. But in April of last year, 2022, um, you had the two women's basketball players. the Cavender twins. The Cavender twins. They left Fresno State for Miami. And they had a huge social media following. Yes, massive. Uh, Top of the game in terms of NIL. And at the time, they were telling front office sports, I went back in my notes, we discussed this, that it wasn't because of NIL as to why they went. But keep in mind, John Ruiz... He was at the forefront of NIL at Miami, uh, a big booster. He was put in touch with them through the Miami head coach, Katie Meyer. So the NCAA, they have not penalized the Twins. They have not penalized John Ruiz. They have penalized Katie Meyer, who's been punished by for facilitating the meeting between the booster and Which the Which was twins. a dinner at his house. Um, the NCAA and they confirmed that by Sports Illustrated, who it confirmed it was Ruiz. And Ruiz met, met them earlier than he should have and provided a recruiting inducement. A free dinner is basically what this was. The punishments, though, slap on the wrist for the most part. You, you have the program that's on probation for a year and they were fined. I don't know the details of the actual fine. And the head coach, Meyer, was also suspended for three games. But you can now have your head coach endorse the collective on campus, but your coach, your program, someone at the university cannot then also set up the meeting with the booster, the one individual. You can do that with the collective but not the individual. And that's what they were doing here based on how well-known these twins are in terms of their name, image, likeness. And I I think this is how they're going. This is how they're ensuring that they're not going to be in front of the Supreme Court. They didn't go after the players. They're not stopping them. And they're not going after Ruiz. They're going after the individual university in the program. 
let me give you a little Twilight Zone for you here. What if the booster is the collective? Well, isn't that shocking? Well, it's, he is the collective. But they're not he going after him. He is the single entity. But they're saying, you know, you can't meet with a booster, but you can meet with a collective. Well, what if John Ruiz, he is the collective no, you, you, for Miami you Athletics? You can meet with whoever you wish as the individual athlete. You cannot, as a coach, specifically set them up as part of a recruiting deal in order to get it done. She facilitated that. The, the coach facilitated said meeting. But they can with a collective, but they can't with a booster. The coach can endorse the collective. They can't. I don't think you can actually just set them but up. But my, my argument is, and this is what John Ruiz, he was on a, on a tear yeah. on Twitter over the weekend saying, please try to disassociate me because you will be sued so fast if that's the case. And I, I love this guy for yeah. that reason with the NCAA. No, I'm with you, Richard. Again, it is the John, he is, it's, it's his collective. So he is both booster and collective. And here's a little uh, update for everyone out there. Every single collective are boosters. These are all people with vested interest in athletics succeeding at that school. These are not really that independent of bodies. You mm -hmm. know, they're all associated as alumni, as fans, well, as business interests within the cities, whatever, as boosters. So where does one end and the other begin? And if I'm John Ruiz, my argument to the NCAA is – yeah, I'm a booster. I also run the collective for Miami, so try and stop me. Well, they, they can't stop him, but what they've done is they've circumvented their own policy or lack thereof. Uh, and, and look, I, I don't blame them for being scared of being sued here, but what they've done is legally, um, according to you know the, the legal analysts that are breaking this down, cbssports.com has uh, the story. Front office sports is where I'm reading this from, but they're citing CBS. Um the punishment from the NCAA came about as a negotiation between the NCAA and the university. So it's more or less arbitration where the university signed off on the punishment. Therefore, it takes away the ability for them to then sue the NCAA for a punishment they agreed to. Well, and the NCAA also gets to come back after the fact in their statement or their findings with it and say, we wish he was disassociated from the university. And that's what fired up John Ruiz. You know, our advice would be to disassociate. And he said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And here's why. And, and I'm, I'm with Ruiz on this. Look, the NCAA just has so little power now with all of this that I completely agree with the NCAA or anyone else who is arguing, hey, we need some controls over some this. Some guidelines, something, Some yeah. guidance, some rules. You know, it can't just be totally the wild, wild west. There are rules in professional sports, even though the athletes get paid a lot of money, for a reason, for a competitive balance, for control, so you don't get something that's completely out of whack. And it is out of whack right now, and in part because John Ruiz knows it's out of whack. He can operate in his own space and sort of do what he wants. I also think that it's just really trivial that we're concerned about this. Well, here's the And especially with the Cavender twins for this reason. This, this is what NIL is for. They come in with the followers. They come in with the status on social media, the ability to market products, uh, to market Life Wallet, which John Ruiz owns, which they're marketing on their social media platform. So I just feel like this is the wrong fight. Well, th yes. But see, the fight now comes down to this, and this is where it's going to be really interesting to follow. The NCAA, uh, back 
in January of this year, they put in a new bylaw that went into effect where they are now saying that they are taking news reports and social media posts that can constitute evidence for a violation in this. So if Sports Illustrated is putting out there in the new world of NIL last year that the Cavender Twins met with Ruiz by way of Katie Meyer, the head coach, they can now look at that and then go to the university and hand down some type of punishment. That's, in effect, that's, you know, the, the Yahoo Sports angle of what we've always seen of them doing the digging. The report comes out, and that's the NCAA investigation for head coach violations, recruiting violations, or anything of the sort. So I'm just going to put two and two together here. Uh, Tony Vitello, Tennessee baseball coach, was suspended for yeah. three games, and it was announced that it was because of tampering allegations with uh, – I, every time I try to get, say this, gets Maui, Maui Ahuna, is sounds his right. last name? That sounds right. Who's yeah. now, who can now play? Right. Yeah, it sounds like one of the characters from from Moana that my daughter <laughs> likes a lot. I think there's a Maui, and I think The Rock plays Maui in that. So every time I hear Maui, I think of The Rock's character in Moana. Um, so Maui Ahuna, there's some tampering allegations. I'm gonna go ahead and guess it's something like this. Right, that he had dinner with them or same arranged length, a dinner, same length of suspension with uh, same length. You know, took it on the chin with a three-game suspension. Tennessee announces what happened. Oh, it was too early, or you know, they got him in touch with the maybe Spire or whatever, or whoever. You know, yeah. some sort of NIL agent, and then this happened. And I just I look at it and, and I think with this, this just isn't the most pressing concern to me with college athletics. No. Because if the guy wants to leave, right, which this guy clearly was going to leave Kansas after this last year and go somewhere, I mean, I think everyone's sort of in the same game. I, I don't know. If, if you're, in fact, following through on your NIL and you know what you're promising these kids and you don't have people promising something they can't deliver and it's on the up and up and they're also asked to do different things for NIL, then I, I just don't have a big issue with it. Chad, Manny Machado. By the way, the sta- did a statement from the coach. Oh yeah. At uh, at Miami was also great where she basically said, Yeah, I don't agree with this. I'm just doing this because I'm being told and I'm of the yeah, utmost the, integrity. The adversity told her and no she one was knew, doing it. No one knew the r- r- rules, basically no, is what you said. No, of course uh, not. The NCAA said everyone's on their own. Yeah. You know, so we're trying to figure all this out and now, you know, it comes to find out. Here it is from Katie Meyer. For over thirty years I have led my programs with integrity and have been a collaborative partner with the NCAA. Collegiate athletics is in transformation, and any inadvertent mistake I made was prior to a full understanding of implemented guardrails and the clarification issued by the NCAA in May. We all look forward to a time when there is a national solution to help our student-athletes, coaches, and institutions. Let me translate. She's saying, I want to take this moment to apologize for absolutely bleeping nothing. That's what I want to do right now. That is Katie Myers' response to the NCAA in a three-game suspension. And honestly, bravo. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, no issues and, with that. None. But, and it's still just a slap on the wrist, but they're pointing to, oh, this is the first ever infraction, suspension, and penalty for NIL. You know who else loves this statement? Jay Billis, because he hates everything with the NCAA. <laughs> and it can never be. No, no 18 to 22-year-old has ever been at fault if they play college sports for anything, any crime, any misbehavior, yeah, ever. They're always right, 100% of the time. That is the Jay Billis stance. Chad, the, the payroll discrepancy in Major League Baseball is – out. It's been out of whack, 
But this year, if you look at the $80 million payroll for one franchise, and then you see the Mets and now the Padres, insanity. You have the haves and the have-nots. And in order to make the game not just more competitive, but just more interesting top to bottom with stars everywhere. Manny Machado, he was already under contract. He's agreed to an extension with the Padres. It's the largest ever for a third baseman in terms of total value, fourth largest for any position. Uh, He's now fourth highest paid behind Trout, Betts, and Aaron Judge. He's got now an 11-year, $350 million extension. He had already been under a 10-year, $300 million contract. But now he's in San Diego to finish his career. He's 30 years old. He finished second in the MVP voting last year for the National League. But, Chad, the payroll for Fernando Tatis, Xander Bogarts, Hugh Darvish, Joe Musgrove, I mean, adding up the money they're going to owe these guys, it is well over $600 million. And now you add on top of that Machado and what they're doing. The Padres of all franchises at the top of the list. And they continue. They bought in at the trade deadline last year, and they continue to put more money behind their star players. You have two different leagues, NFL and Major League Baseball. Ooh. One league is designed for everyone. It was 8-8, eight and eight, but now they have 17 games, so the math is off. But everyone to go 8-9 and nine or 9-8 nine and eight, based on the rules of the league and the salary cap and the way the draft works and the way everything's implemented – it is designed for everyone, if you are doing a decent job, to go 8-9 and nine or 9-8. Nine and eight. Here you have another league in Major League Baseball that is actually designed right now based on ownership money and the way money is allocated to where seven or eight teams are designed to win 100-plus games a year and literally every other team in the league is designed to suck. That is yeah. not good for interest in your sport. It is great if you're a Mets fan. It is great if you're a Yankees fan. It is great if you're a Dodgers fan. It is great now if you're a Padres fan. There are select teams that spend at the highest levels that you love your summers. But if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Baltimore Orioles, who, by the way, Hutton are off to a great start this spring. I'm getting a little bit optimistic oh, about your O's. Where they, uh, they're starting when they finish. Or the Kansas City Royals. I mean, with the exception of building a great farm system and having a young team that comes of age early – and being able to go on a nice yeah. run before you have to lose those guys in free agency. Or, or, or they're traded. Or trade them away. It's a tough sport. I mean, look, I'm a Braves fan, and I've had a, I, they won the World Series a couple of years ago, and they were competitive into the playoffs this year. It's fun. It's fun being a Braves fan right now. They're not the very top of the league in spending, and eventually, even though they've got young guys under team control for a while, it's not going to be any fun to be a Braves fan because there's going to be six other teams spending about 150 mil more than they are. And you're going to go into a weekend series of those teams and say, well, they got swept again. Why? I don't know, because they have all the good players on this team. That's why they keep losing. It's not fun. This is not a sustainable model for your league if you're baseball. The NFL is a sustainable model. It's out of whack. That is the sustainable model well, of pro and there, sports. There, and you have the ownership that is spending versus the ownership that's not, that can't come to terms on where the middle ground is because one's willing to spend a, more than just the middle ground for those that are on the cheap. If you had uh, 23 more Steve Cohens oh. own Major League Baseball teams, oh. if you had a child 
That is a good athlete. How in the world would you not get them they to play to baseball? They need start riding left-handed before they I mean, I'm just looking at it thinking, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of serious debilitating injury is lower yeah. than a lot of other sports, right? I mean, all of the – Guaranteed then financial. You just have blank checks being written by these owners, that super billionaire-type guys who yeah. don't even care if they're losing money as long as they can win. What a sport. I what know. a time to be a great baseball player if you're coming up to the ranks right now and you're seeing what some of these teams are spending. Chris Trapasso is about to join us. He's the CBS Sports Draft Analyst. He is at the NFL Combine or headed there, I believe. And we'll preview tomorrow's start in Indianapolis. We'll get the top headlines from Chris and much more. Straight ahead on OutKick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. It's going to be a busy week of reporting from Indianapolis. Everyone's in a great mood as far as franchises are concerned. Coaches don't feel the pressure. GMs are building or rebuilding, but they're solidified in the direction they're going. Really, the nervous guys are the scouts because they clean house with the scouting department after the draft. But in terms of quarterbacks, both in the draft and free agency and the agents that are on the scene in Indianapolis and all of that, We'll start to stack some info as we head towards April and really March 15th. Chris Trapasso joins us, CBS Sports NFL Draft Analyst. Chris, it's going to be busy. What's the top headline right now in Indianapolis as we begin what's going to be the craziness for NFL Draft 2023? It's all about Florida quarterback Anthony Richardson and the fact that he came out today and said that he is going to work out, he's going to throw, going to go through the entire gamut of all the on-field drills. Meanwhile, Bryce Young from Alabama is not going to do anything. And I think that raised a little bit of a red flag where Bryce Young maybe didn't feel like he had the same level of athleticism or arm strength as Anthony Richardson from in there inside the SEC. Will Levis is going to throw too. He's going to do some workouts. So early on, and a lot of people are just arriving today, it's all about these top four quarterbacks and the fact that we are going to see three of the top four work out, but Bryce Young, notably, not going to work out here in Indy. Chris, how legit are the thoughts of Richardson or Levis going ahead of Young or C.J. Stroud at this point? Right now, I don't think they feel very strong, but how I view it, and I kind of double-checked this with a few scouts that I know, they think that after the Combine, we will start to get more momentum for either of those two quarterbacks to potentially be that quarterback that a team trades up with the Bears at the number one pick and and ultimately is the top pick in the draft just because they're both very physical, very athletic quarterbacks. We're going to see their cannon arms that they have in the throwing session. 
And for as great as Bryce Young is, for as poised as he is beyond his years, anticipation throws all over his film, he's probably going to be 5'10", 5'11", and might get to 200 pounds. Meanwhile, Will Levis and Anthony Richardson look the part, and they have that, at least in the realm of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Justin Herbert-type arm strength and athleticism. To to me, C.J. Stroud is sort of the ultimate uh, tweener between the two worlds we're talking about here. Bryce Young, obviously super productive. To me, he's the best player in this draft, best quarterback in this draft, versus the potential physically between Will Levis and Anthony Richardson. Here's a guy who's good size, who did it at a high level, right? And doesn't have a ton of question marks around him. Chris, how do you view him in relation to those other three quarterbacks we discussed? Well, that's interesting that you said that because he's my number one quarterback in this draft class. I have him graded just ahead of Bryce Young. I think he gives you a little bit more arm talent and arm strength than Bryce Young. And I think he's a little bit more polished, just strictly inside the pocket. He does not come close to Bryce Young, ad-libbing, creating, evading uh, pass rushers inside the pocket. I mean, we got a little glimpse of what C.J. Stroud can do in that uh, college football playoff game against Georgia. And that being the final game that scouts saw and people like me saw certainly kind of tipped the arrow upward for him during this pre-draft process. You're absolutely right. He's He's right in the middle. He's kind of like Bryce Young in some ways and a little bit like Will Levis and Anthony Richardson. But that's what, again, is so good about the combine is that we get in this draft three of those quarterbacks on the same field. We can look at their their velocity on their fastballs and see them working out and to ultimately see how they compare athletically, which has become really important at the quarterback position in today's NFL. Chris Trapasso joins us, CBS Sports NFL Draft Analyst from Indianapolis on the eve of the start of the NFL Combine. Chris, so the, the Bears are in a great spot. They've got $100 million worth of cap space right now. They have a, a quarterback still under his rookie contract, and they're going to get a haul for that number one overall pick because if you're a team not Houston or Indy, you want to get ahead of that group so that you get your guy. And you've got to get ahead of Houston at number two. What do you think the hall could be for, for Chicago? And is it more is it more about how great Levis and Richardson end up being in the minds of not one, but many? Because then you kind of stack the group different if you're looking for that top tier. Yeah, that's a great question. I think to just add more competition at the top of this quarterback class, like I mentioned, I think we're going to see that after this combine that we all know that Anthony Richardson is a little bit raw. But again, when he is 6'3", 225 pounds, runs in the four fives, has a vertical in the upper 30s, people are going to just be so tantalized by what he could become. You throw him into the mix with the high floor of Bryce Young, I think there will be multiple bidders calling the Chicago Bears, like you mentioned, trying to get ahead of the Houston Texans. They're going to get multiple first-round picks and probably a few day-two selections in the upcoming drafts. What will ultimately be the question that the Bears need to answer is, do they want to move back to four where they could probably still get one of Jalen Carter or Will Anderson? Or do they want to just diversify all the, the draft capital that they could get and hopefully maybe move back to number nine with the Carolina Panthers, a team that has kind of waded in the waters of the veteran free uh, uh, quarterback market of late and certainly was not successful. 
if they do that, they're going to miss out on those marquee defensive prospects at the top from the SEC, but they're going to get probably two or maybe even three first-round picks that could really help them as they're just at this ground floor of the rebuilding process. Chris, looking through your big board right now uh, of top prospects at CBSSports.com, and I was surprised. We're based out of Nashville, Tennessee here. I was surprised to see number 11 and the first offensive tackle on your list is Darnell Wright uh, from Tennessee. This is way higher than I've seen him anywhere else. What is it about Darnell Wright that, that appeals to you? Well, he really brings everything that I look for in an offensive tackle that I think we're here at the Combine. We're going to be talking about certainly even offensive linemen that that run fast, that have good verticals. But what I've noticed in my years of scouting is that you need to be big and powerful once you get to the NFL. And it usually takes even the marquee talents at the position every year, at least a, a season or two to get what I call NFL strong. You just can't really mimic the power, even in the SEC, that you're going to see in the NFL. At 6'5 and 340-plus pounds, Darnell Wright is about as close to being NFL strong as I've seen at the offensive tackle position. Would probably go back to Tristan Wirfs, who really hit the ground running out of Iowa with the Buccaneers in the 2020 draft. Um, And then beyond that, he is so advanced and nuanced as a pass protector. Even at right tackle, resetting his hands, swatting down the arms of edge rushers that he faced. And he faced a lot of good ones in the SEC, I thought he gave Will Anderson as good of a battle as any offensive lineman gave Will Anderson in his three seasons at Alabama. He's not an amazing run blocker, but at 6'5", 340, and you know he can come in and be very advanced as a pass protector, that to me screams middle of the first round talent. I hope he runs well, tests well to kind of check that final box. But in terms of just the film, Darnell Wright checked every box for me. Chris, where is the buzz lacking at the wide receiver position at the top of this draft? It, I've seen guys in mocks put the wide receivers all over the place in the first mm-hmm. round. Where does the value really land right now with the three or four top guys? I think it's later in round one, like the last few selections, those teams that were went deep into the playoffs but could certainly use some more um, reinforcement at the receiver spot. We're not getting that normal buzz because first off, I think everyone understands there's not a Jamar Chase. There's not a Jalen Waddle. There's not that type of marquee top five to top seven overall selection at at the position. And the consensus top receiver right now, Quentin Johnston, is coming from a wide open kind of air raid system where he didn't run a lot of routes. And it's going to take him some time to learn the route tree kind of on the fly at the NFL level. He's big. He's fast. He creates after the catch. But the more nuanced players at the position, Jordan Addison, Zay Flowers, um, Jackson Smith and the Jigba from Ohio State, they're all a little bit smaller. So with those Jamar Chase types, you had the size, you had the route tree, you had the yards after the catch ability. We don't really have that at the top of this wide receiver class. But we've seen in the past with the likes of A.J. Brown and Debo Samuel, D.K. Metcalf in 2019, Terry McLaurin in that same draft class in the third round, You can still get like wide receiver ones on day two of the draft. That's what this draft class feels more like as opposed to what we've seen recently with the, you know, those big time top 10 overall picks at the receiver spot. And this running back class has a lot of depth. Is there a big drop off from Bijan Robinson at Texas to to number two on the list? Or do you see not as much separation between him and everyone else that if you look at any top 10 running backs, 
uh, when you look at this, it, it, there's some good quality there. Yeah, it, it is really deep at the running back spot. And I, I don't think there's that big of a gap between B. Jan Robinson and, say, Jameer Gibbs from Alabama, Devin A. Chain from Texas A&M. Those are two just speedsters at the running back position. I love everything about B. Jan Robinson. He feels very similar to Saquon Barkley to me, but he's not quite as fast as Saquon Barkley was. I mean, Saquon Barkley ran... 4-4 flat at 230 pounds at the 2018 combine. I, I don't think Bijan Robinson is that fast. And I think in today's NFL, beyond the whole idea that teams realize maybe it's not the smartest allocation of a draft pick to pick a running back in the first round, teams are really prioritizing. And I've talked to a lot of scouts about this, just straight line speed at the position where if Things are blocked right, and you can hit a 60- or 70-yard touchdown, but you're not going to get the ball and be great 20, 25 times a game. Teams are okay with that. And I think with Gibbs, with A-Chain, even with Israel Abanacanda from Pittsburgh, um, Tank Bigsby from Auburn, those guys can hit those home runs. So I certainly think if there's a running back who goes in the first round, it will be Bijan Robinson, but we'll ultimately look back at the likes of Gibbs and A-Chain and say, those were better value selections at the running back spot. Chris, you, you, we mentioned Anthony Richardson, Will Levis. They have a lot to gain. They're working out. They're throwing uh, in full. Give us a quarterback that's on day two that has the most to gain this week in Indianapolis. Well, had he not torn his ACL, I would have gone with Hendon Hooker because I, I liked his athleticism and his ability to um, create outside of the pocket and just how many bucket throws that he dropped to Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman last season. Um, I'll go with Jaron Hall from BYU. He's probably actually more of a day three guy. Um, he's a little bit of an older prospect. And I think certainly coming from that BYU program that spit out Zach Wilson, who's ultimately flamed out in two seasons with the Jets, doesn't necessarily help him. But you watch the Jaron Hall film over the last two years, and I think his creativity, his athleticism will sneak up on some people. If he tests very well, runs one of the faster 40s, has you know a good vertical, a good broad jump, throws it well, because I think he's got a pretty live arm, he could be someone that could sneak into the back end of the second day of the draft and start his career as a backup, who could maybe even come in early in his career in that spot-starting role and win a game or two for an NFL team. What do you believe Hyatt needs to run to be a first-round pick? I think if he runs anywhere close to 4-4 flat, high 4-3s, which I think certainly is doable at his size, um, he just has the perfect size uh, or height and weight combination that he's going to be right around 6 foot, 180 pounds. That's what yeah. we've seen with John Ross, Henry Ruggs. Last year, uh, Kalen Barnes, the cornerback from Baylor, ran in the 4-2s right around that size. If he runs and shows 4-3 something, which I think he will, I think he'll lock himself in the first round. He doesn't have the super well-rounded skill set, but again, speed is a priority for teams today. Just your ability to hit those splash plays, and certainly as we saw this past season with Jalen Hyatt, he can do that. I almost feel like Will Anderson is kind of a forgotten guy in this because of all the talk about what the Bears are going to do trading back and yeah. all the talk about quarterback. I look at Jalen Carter as just another you know super successful guy that's won back-to-back -back national championships. Uh, there's so many Bama and Georgia guys every year now that we're talking about in the draft that sometimes the top guys in a weird way get lost in the shuffle. Uh, what do you think about those two and about – 
my theory that you produce so many NFL players and it's easy to forget some of them at times, which is a compliment to both programs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those are the two marquee programs in college football today, not just winning national titles, competing, but just spitting out first round picks, multiple guys uh, early in the draft every year. I think you're right, though, that they are probably going to go into at least the pro day circuit a little bit underrated because I, I would be surprised if either of them do a lot working out. I think Will Anderson said today he's not going to work out. We haven't gotten any word on Jalen Carter yet, but they don't need to work out. They don't need to prove anything. Anthony Richardson is trying to show everyone how fast he is because he's a little bit raw on the field. Jalen Carter and Will Anderson looked like future first round picks the second they stepped foot into the SEC. So there's certainly be a lot of Georgia and Alabama players that we're going to talk about. Brian Branch, Keely Ringo, Christopher Smith, the safety from Georgia, who's such a fun player. But yeah, Will Anderson and Jalen Carter, I, I think are locked in to the top five, but we won't hear that much about them because it's really just like that they're um, marquee talents that we've known for almost a year now that they're going to go that high in the draft. What is it about Tyree Wilson from Texas Tech that some have moved ahead of Anderson at the position? He is going to give more size and length than Will Anderson. I mean, there's not any concerns about Anderson's size. Um, he kind of looks like that modern-day defensive end that doesn't have to be gigantic. But Tyree Wilson could be like 6'6 six, six or 6'7, six, 260 pounds with crazy long arms. He can bend, had a great season at Texas Tech, certainly does not have the multiple years of high-level productivity that Will Anderson has. But any teams that prioritize length and size, maybe even more so than what they saw on the field. That's why I think we're starting to get some buzz for Tyree Wilson, um, maybe being right up there with Will Anderson in this draft class at the edge rusher spot. And if let's hypothetically say Chicago doesn't move out of number one, which defensive player do they select? I think it would be Jalen Carter. Okay. And, and that's not any inside info. It's just that I think it is harder in today's NFL to find a truly three-down disruptive interior defensive lineman than it is to find an edge rusher. I think in this draft, it's loaded at the edge rusher position. And I would think that their GM, Ryan Poles, would realize, okay, we can find someone that's maybe 70 or 80% of Will Anderson, but the drop-off between Jalen Carter and the number two edge rusher or interior defensive lineman that can get up the field can be a, a 70 or 80 tackle guy and a 10 sack guy. It, it, there's just not that player in this draft. So I think because of that and the positional value and how scarce it is to find someone like Jalen Carter, who's really like a unicorn, I think they would go with Jalen Carter. Chris Trapasso has been our guest, CBS Sports NFL Draft Analyst. Uh, great work as always, man. We we appreciate the the visit today. Good luck all week uh, with all of the, the coverage that you'll be having at CBS. Yep, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, man. And uh, check him out on Twitter, at Chris Trapasso. Uh, great follow and uh, loads of information there on the NFL Draft, NFL Combine coverage. Uh, we'll have you there covered as well at OutKick. And I'm sure some of the coverage that we'll be uh, writing about will be through tweets from Chris, uh, as well as uh, Armando and others that will be on site this week. Looking forward, Really looking forward to chatting with Armando. Really good info from him and this uh, Tis the Season I, now for I NFL agree. Draft. I agree with him on it sounds crazy because i love will anderson but carter is probably better value given the fact that if you start naming off interior defensive linemen aaron donald uh jeffrey simmons chris jones and then you have to you know the 
really start to think yeah. about other guys yeah. that are huge difference makers. Yeah, and I, I, I think Carter's one of those guys. Yeah, now he he could certainly be a difference maker in a spot that there are few and far between with that upper tier guy. Uh, that's a difference maker. I love Will Anderson though. Yeah. So it's, unless that's he's a messed up with one. Darnell Wright. Yeah, whoever that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, he may uh, look. That's the highest I've seen Darnell Wright. So I wanted to ask him about it. But yeah. he brought up some good points about him, and you know he was negated this year in that Tennessee win over Alabama by Darnell Wright. I'm talking about Will Anderson. Yeah. But back-to-back years, by the way. Whoever that first defensive player drafted is, if the we think the Bears will trade out and the quarterback mm-hmm. will go one, it's going to be interesting to see who someone drafts with that that spot. Arizona at three could be the first one we see, or it could be Chicago if they trade back with Indianapolis. Hit us up with your thoughts. Outkick360, you can join us in the chat as well. You can chat with Chad uh, on YouTube. Just search out Outkick360. We'll hope you'll subscribe while you're there. Uh, coming up, there's a new Netflix and a Netflix series, an HBO series that's coming, and a trial that's ongoing. That's captivated me. Chad's all on board as well from the weekend binge. Details next on Outkick 360. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Outkick 360 rolls on. Sixth and Peabody are location with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Uh, Chad, you've been captivated by this trial that I've been watching. It's ongoing. The defense actually rested today, officially. But the the documentary, documentary, the three-part, I believe, docuseries is out on Netflix. There's two. So Netflix has a three-part docuseries. HBO has a three-part docuseries. HBO one's called Low Country. And then the Netflix one's called The Murdaw Murders. I have a hard time saying Murdog the way they pronounce it. Cause I, it's like the, Murdaw, like you it said. It should though. be Murdaw, but they mispronounce. The family mispronounces their own name. Yeah. Alex, it's A-L-E-X, and he tells everyone his name is Alec. That's what thinking, everyone calls That's him. not what that is. But like, that, I, it's just the low country of South Carolina. This, it's a five-county uh, jurisdiction for the chief solicitor. And the Murdoch family has held power until he was ousted uh, for like 87 years, an 87-year run of his family running the low country of South Carolina, either from a judicial power or political power. And the, everything in the background of their family storyline prior to him being charged with double murder of his wife and son is in pure insanity on top of the lies and the web that he spins, the addiction. Uh, he took the stand in his own defense, and uh, Creighton Waters is the lead prosecutor. I mean, it, for two days, he was on cross-examination, and they, they went at it. It was... I, I enjoy the live trial scenario. I like seeing how they phrase questions to get the answer that they want versus um, how the person on the stand will be trying to relay the information for on behalf of whichever side 
they're paid to be there for. Um, this is the details of this. I don't know how he's going to be found not guilty. I, I think at best there's a mistrial. But Chad, that what what's your what's the most fascinating detail for you in the background of the show so far? Well, just I'm a I'm a story guy, so it's the to me to sum it up, it's the story of extreme privilege where one family they're basically kings mm -hmm. of this small area. You know, this is when you have there's one of the doc I've seen so much over the weekend. One of the documentaries had a line that said, "The smaller the pond can produce, the bigger the fish." At times, and this is what you have in this area where the Murdoch family is that's the biggest fish in this small little pond in Hampton, South Carolina. But extreme privilege and what extremes people will go to to hold on to it, yeah, I think is the biggest thing with me. That and the fact that I just I watch it and the Netflix documentary docuseries does a great job in that first episode, it goes in the boating accident and what happens there, and I just I can't even look at a member of the Murdoch family and not dislike them, right? Like yeah. you see the youngest son, Paul, and think, this is just a little, you know what? Throughout, like the whole thing, the reaction to it and, and everything, it's, yeah. man, it's, it's tough to watch, you know, all the families involved and, you know, you've got the kids who are what, early 20s now, maybe 20 yeah. years old yeah. that were in high school when a lot of this was going on that are interviewed, interviewed on both the Netflix series and the HBO series. Um, it's a crazy, crazy story uh, of, again, like what you will do to cover up and or hold on to this power and this money and this corruption that and you it, are in control of. And it's about the last name because even after the double murders, which he's accused of and on trial for, uh, Alec Murdoch. By the way, the murder of his wife and youngest son. Youngest son, Paul, who was in the boating accident you're talking about that yeah. caused it. Um on top of that, after all that, that that took place in June, and in September, and he's admitted this in open court now, that he set up this hit on himself, where he paid someone to drive by. He stopped on the side of the road. Paid his drug dealer. Yeah, but yeah, he paid his drug dealer. He he stopped on the side of the road, stabbed his tire with you know something, flat tire, and then paid someone to drive by and shoot him in the head. They were not accurate. Like, they grazed his skull. I mean, he, he had, you know, the x-rays to prove that he, he was attacked. He was trying to make it seem like the gunman came back for him. Or at least that's the accusation. But he has since admitted that he did that because he wanted his older son to inherit the Murdoch legacy and the money and everything involved from the insurance that would be paid out. That's how bad off he was mentally even after all of this, it is, uh, and it's not just it's fascinating so, and it's, it's horrible at the same time. Well, the, the, you know, the main thing is the, the double homicide, double murder that the, the elder Murdaugh in this case, Alec, it's spelled Alex, but Alec Murdaugh is accused of, but you have all of these side stories that they don't even spend a lot of time on. Oh, the docu -series he, he stole that, over that, $3 million. Well, that the housekeeper, who mysteriously fell down some brick stairs yeah. a month and a half after he took out a $3 million insurance policy. Yep. If anyone were to die on his property that he collected on, um, there's the uh, the high school kid who's found dead in the street 
that was essentially a homicide, but made to look like he got struck by a car. But in reality, there were bruises and probably but, was but in what the they relationship do, with him and Buster Murdaugh, the oldest son. But what they've that done, was a possibility. though, is the family with the political and judicial power, they would then jump in and represent the families that they were trying to keep quiet. Yeah. And that's how they strung this out the way they did uh, with the the law firm, which is since again they're they're no longer that law firm. But it's like the he, only law firm in the five counties. It seems like you have to go there yeah. to get a lawyer. Well, there's one, yes. There's one chief solicitor that was overseeing those five counties of the Low Country of South Carolina, and it's just a. I mean, it, you feel like you're watching a movie that this. There's no way this could have played out the way it did, and I mean he he has a he has a state senator representing him as his attorney. Uh, that, that's the other thing about this. Representing Murdoch. Yeah. I, I, so I went into it and watched this docuseries. I just heard about the trial that everyone was talking about, not really following the news on it. So I went in completely blind yeah. and ignorant to anything. So, Hutton, you had mentioned something about a, a kids in a boating accident yeah. that kind of kicked it off. Well, the first episode of the Netflix series kicks it off with that, but... Imagine my surprise when at the end of it, it's the 911 call where he's talking about his wife and kid being shot and killed. I had no idea. So I am watching this like it's a movie being played out before me because I didn't know any facts of the case well, and then, until seeing it. And then while he's on the stand, they catch him in a lie where he says he didn't see them after they left the house. And on the stand, he's admitted he has to admit he lied about the detail of going down to the dog kennels, which is where the murder took place, because they have that OnStar on his truck, yeah, and it tells them exactly where he was, even though he didn't have the OnStar on mapping anything. His whole thing, where there's like this 12-minute window where he says he was somewhere else, and he wasn't. And that's what it comes down to, and whether or not the jury will believe him or that technology. Check it out on Netflix. It's worth the binge. We're back at it tomorrow, 3 o'clock Eastern. Outkick 360 right here across the Outkick Network.